0: Well, ladies and gentlemen welcome to the scoop i'm your host frank chaparro and i'm very excited to be joined today on the other side of the mic we have dr frederica Ernst, co-founder of gnosis and gnosis pay i think this is probably the first time we've ever had a physicist come on the show we can probably get into your Background and the windy path um, that led you to this crypto world. We all have our own interesting story, and and yours is quite fun. We're going to be talking also about obviously bridging the gap between on chain and off chain payments and why globally people want more than one way to pay, right? When we think about what the future looks like, there's probably going to be a whole potpourri of different options, whether it be stablecoin or or I'm sure cash in some form will still exist, and and then we'll also have these on-chain mechanisms. And my producer made a really interesting point, which we can maybe start with. If if we can't really figure out payments, what is really the whole point of doing any of this crypto stuff, right? It kind of seems like seems like the basics. Yet it's been a bit difficult to hack. So. We can definitely dive into that. Really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Um, let's just start with the background that we were getting into before we turn on the mics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Um, yeah, so I'm one of the co-founders of Gnosis. As you said, I am, um, a physicist, um, in disguise. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> all <laughs> physicists can code, so it's fine. Um. I loved all things computer and building stuff from a very young age on. So I remember my dad gave me this book, um, uh, the code book by mm-hmm. Simon Singh, uh, which came out in the late nineties and I absolutely loved it. And, um, I actually went on to kind of study maths and physics and biology and neuroscience. And I actually, um, I, I ended up doing a PhD in physics. So, um, uh yeah, I I worked on low dimensional complex quantum systems here in Berlin and then I went on the academic track track because I really loved finding stuff out. Mm. It was just such a pleasure
0: solving problems.
1: Solving problems, exactly, setting up experiments, looking at data, analyzing data, drawing conclusions. Loved it. Um so I went on to kind of do a couple of postdocs, one at Columbia in New York and then one um, at Stanford in California. And then I snagged a professorship here in Hamburg, in Germany, and then I dropped out to Foundnosis with my two co-founders, Martin and Stefan, whom I had known for many years. <laughs> we were old friends from Berlin, so they were computer scientists. And they had been in the Bitcoin space for a while um, when they met Joe Lubin at a meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they, at the time, were kind of playing around with prediction markets and betting on-chain Um, kind of on Bitcoin technology, which you can imagine was difficult to build at the time. And Joe told them, look, this new thing is coming out. It's called Ethereum. It's not really live yet, um, but you should replicate this entire thing on Ethereum instead. And uh, so he hired them as employees two and three of ConsenSys, very long time ago, (laughs) by blockchain standards. And um, when Gnosis actually spun out as its own company in 2017, I joined them full time as a co-founder.
0: It was one of the spokes, right? The way when we think about the old consensus model of, of yesterday, um, for listeners who maybe were not around in those, in those heady days of 2017, 2018, consensus was effectively this incubation firm with several different projects kind of spinning out of it so what was the vision um for the project at its at its nascent stage what were you guys setting out to do
1: yeah we were going to build a platform um for information markets or prediction markets oh that's right yeah if 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 you actually think back um this sounds incredible now, but basically people back then were incredibly excited about prediction markets. So there, I remember this one Coindesk survey where people were asked, um, what are you most excited about in the Web3 space? Not sure w- whether it was Web3. I'm, I'm not sure whether that time existed back then, but like 70% said prediction markets. And now mm-hmm. they're very marginal. Um, but at the time, kind of, we had... Um, the idea that kind of we could use prediction markets to kind of um, aggregate information and kind of weed out what today we would call fake news—the um, mm-hmm. term also didn't exist back then—and mm-hmm. uh, in the and we actually ended up building that platform, so that that exists, it's still around. It's called Omen, but because we were so early, we were literally the first app live on Ethereum.
0: Yeah, I I totally forgot. Um, you're really you're really bringing me back. Um, to five or some odd years ago. But yeah, this was really the Polymarket before, before Polymarket in some respects.
1: Yeah, th- this was actually, this was seven years ago. This was in mm-hmm. early 2017, right? So basically mm-hmm. we were the first step live on Ethereum and kind of being so early, we actually ended up building lots of like foundational infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So kind of we built things like the Gnosis Mm Save, like CowSwap, this MEV-resistant DEX. We built Zodiac, kind of a DAO tooling. We incubated Karpatki, which is kind of one of the treasury management DAOs and so on. So basically this all kind of grew out of Gnosis. And Mm -hmm. as your editor very rightly said, (laughs) is (laughs) payments never really happened, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of um, about two years ago or so, we looked at... All of the things we had built along the way, and many of which had become very successful in their own right. And we asked ourselves, what are we doing this for? <laughs> what should we concentrate on next? And to us, the answer was payments. Because kind of we've been saying this is peer to peer cash mm-hmm. for the better part of 15 years, right? Um, and it's never really happened in a, in a meaningful way. I mean, there's some remittance, but by and large, it's it's fairly marginal, mm-hmm. and in principle, payments it's a fairly simple process. Kind of if you compare it with other things, like for instance, distributed compute and LLMs and um, social networks and so on, payments mm-hmm. is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and there are silos, there are rent seeking mm-hmm. structures that kind of we think crypto could. Um,
0: Got to get rid of that interchange fee.
1: <laughs> exactly. And abolish in the long run. So basically we kind of ask ourselves now that kind of we have basic infrastructure and we have tooling and we can in principle build an advanced user experience that won't deter people who are used to Web2 standards. What can we build that will actually bring the most value to, you know, you know, significant parts of humanity. And payments to us was the lowest hanging fruit here. So kind of this is how we concentrated on payments. Um and how all of this kind of came about.
0: Mm. So tell us about Gnosis Pay, like its inception story and and where is it now?
1: Yeah, so um it is definitely a very cool project for us. So Gnosis Pay, Gnosis Card. Um it's it's a self custodial visa certified Debit card, and um, where you can actually spend the crypto that you self custody yourself anywhere that Visa is is accepted worldwide. So, at any of the hundred million Visa merchants, you can spend the crypto directly from your wallet. <laughs> um, and it's currently it's live in private beta. So, kind of we're still doing bug fixes and so on. We've had several thousand people pre-order cards. Currently only in Europe and the European economic area. We're looking to roll it out globally though this year. What
0: does the underpinning infrastructure look like and maybe walk us through or juxtapose it with someone just, you know, is it akin to what we saw a lot of hype around in like Flexa or whatever it was five or some odd years ago? Where at the point of sale, the crypto then converts to cash. How does it sort of work?
1: Yeah. So the user experience is just a regular debit card, Mm -hmm. right? So basically you have a safe account that's abstracted away from you. So basically it's got a safe under the hood. Mm -hmm. But basically you just see your balance and you can top it up and you spend it anywhere that Visa is accepted um, with your regular PIN if it's above the threshold and without PIN if it's below the threshold. So basically it's it's a regular contactless or, you know, chip and PIN card. That's the user experience. What actually happens under the hood Mm -hmm. is that you give Gnosis Pay allowance to take tokens, stable coins out of your wallet. And this is done at the point of sale. The message actually gets passed on over the visa protocol, we take it out of your safe wallet. And as soon as the amount is taken out of your wallet, the transaction is confirmed. And as per visa protocol it should take no longer than six seconds. It usually takes around two or so. It's pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's that's all there is to it. And then basically it gets off ramp. The other way you don't you're not privy to this as a user. Um basically we use a um european stablecoin provider called monarium they have mm. the only licensed URI euro version of of uh, web3 it's called URI um, and basically the way that it works is kind of it goes to there into a wallet from monarium and is settled from there um, but basically the settlement process on the non-consumer side on the acquirer side as a customer you're not usually privy to that and you're also not privy to it here
0: and what about the merchant what 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 are they privy to? Is it ex- abstracted away for them? And yep, yeah,
1: completely abstracted away for for them as well. Um, so the merchant doesn't know that you're using a super special card. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean that that is the way that the payment stack is usually constructed, right? So basically the um the merchant knows which cards they can accept. Um, So basically they can accept Visa or MasterCard or Amex or whatever kind of their payment stack does. Mm -hmm. And then basically it's abstracted away from them too.
0: And how does it lower costs for the merchant?
1: So currently it doesn't lower costs for the merchant. But what you could imagine is kind of Visa and MasterCard and SEPA and SWIFT and... uh, all of these vehicles, they're called payment schemes. Mm-hmm. And you can register a new payment scheme. So basically what the merchant pays um, is actually very, very, um, uh, it varies a lot uh, mm-hmm. by location. So in the European Union, union, it's actually, um, it's capped at 20 basis points, which is not so bad mm-hmm. um, for the entire stack. In much of the rest of the world, it's much, much higher. So in the US, the average debit card transaction costs the merchant 130 basis points and um, there are some credit cards that cost up to f- um, 400 basis points to the merchant and obviously this is something that merchants hate particularly because they don't even know how much they'll be paying on a particular transaction because there's different qu- sorts of cards and they have different kind of fee schedules for the merchant. What you can in principle do is you can register a new Payment scheme, and you can enable the merchant to accept stables directly. So they would kind of have their own Monarium account. The euro, uh, the URI would kind of be passed from your wallet straight to them, and that would kind of bypass the entire fee part. Um, this only works as long as enough people actually have these cards because that actually requires an integration at the point of sale terminal. And these points of sale terminals. They, uh, their software is provided by a, um, oligopoly of different firms that most people have never heard of. Mm. And basically in order to kind of get integrated into that, you need to have a usage of you know, more than like 1% of customers should want to use this path.
0: Are we talking about Toast and Square, those, those systems?
1: Yeah, so things like sum up and I mean so basically they the 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 names vary by jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um it's fairly localized, but mm-hmm.
0: um yeah. Mm. How do you see crypto impacting that business? The sort of POS system, the actual hardware aspect of payments?
1: Oh, I think that will stay around. I think kind of um, most of the user experience around payments will stay exactly as it is for mm. the user and also to the, for the most part, for the merchant, it's just that kind of the um, stack, the rails on which mm. um they will be built will become much, much more efficient. So basically kind of if mm. you look at, for instance, uh the telecommunications revolution. So kind of when I was a kid, we had a... Landline phone, and I had Mm -hmm. an aunt in America. And we would call her maybe like every other month or so, and the entire family would gather (laughs) around um, the telephone because it was like five five German marks per minute or something. (laughs) Um, And um, so, but basically, if you think about it now, I mean, you're in the US and we're speaking here, and Mm -hmm. kind of basically the user experience is much the same. Sure, we don't use kind of like the dial pad, but we could right? I mean, if we could, we could do this on FaceTime. Um, so kind of the user experience hasn't significantly changed, but basically everything that kind of runs it has changed a hundred percent, right? There's no longer horses underneath. There's like an actual like motor powering this and it's, it's the same. It's going to be the same for payments. And I think kind of, we have talked about um, some of the cases until now where payments actually, work for the people who are uh, involved to a large extent in the global north payments is not that much of a problem right so in principle payments work for us on a daily basis this is not the case um for 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 most of the world there are big parts of the world where electronic payments don't work or are not accessible to everyone. Or where even very basic financial products that kind of in Web3 we think of as boring and extremely standard. So things like holding USDC, for instance. Mm -hmm. This is a big value proposition in large parts of the world. So basically Mm -hmm. if you think, for instance, if you think about LATAM, having a dollarized account, it's a status symbol because uh, basically most people do not have access to this. And um, kind of being able to kind of provide this on the back of technology that already exists to regular people, to me, this is a huge value proposition. So basically, kind of if, if you look at access to digital financial payment systems, yeah, the global south is currently underserved. And with products like Gnosis Pay and also another product that we are building internally called Gnosis Wallet, we can address that um, at a very large scale so basically gnosis wallet is built on the gnosis safe um it's meant to be a basically an on-chain neobank it would give you an Iban so an international bank account routing number because we're we we're, we're integrated with monarium and basically other people can do it in other jurisdictions so kind of you send money to that
0: Iban so the wallet will have like a like this a Swift code equivalent
1: Yeah. Exactly. It already does. So if someone
0: were to send a wire to that from the States, typically, right, they, they ask for like the bank address and they ask for the SWIFT code or the IBAN. I hate wires. So this is, this is getting into very uncomfortable territory for me.
1: Yeah. I hate wires too. So basically uh, when I, when I worked in the States uh, for a while, um, for for part of it, I still had a salary from Germany and the easiest way to actually transfer money from Germany to the US, two countries that are super well connected. And that, I mean, it's it's not like, it's not like it was Papua New Guinea or something, Um, but basically the easiest way was to kind of, um, ask my bank in Germany to, to, um, speak with their correspondence bank in the States and they would send a check, like a physical check in the mail would take two weeks. It's insane, and it's it's. It wasn't that long ago. It was maybe like ten years ago or so, and it has it hasn't significantly changed. So yeah, if you have the IBAN, um, you can just send money to that IBAN. It's there typically um, pretty instant, so two or three minutes, and uh, you can do this from any fiat account you may have with any bank.
0: <laughs> I don't know if I if I try if I try to send it from Chase to that IBAN. I know Chase is going to. Put the kibosh on that real quick. They won't I mean
1: You mean because because of the crypto connection or because of the
0: No, I they, they just any time I send a wire from Chase so like you have to come in person and sign some paperwork.
1: Oh yeah. But I think this is kind of like American banks for you. So basically in Europe we kind of have neo banks, so kind mm-hmm. of they, they are apps. Uh, most people do most things kind of from, from their mobile phone.
0: Sure, sure. Like a Revolut or whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like Revolut. And uh, basically, Gnosis um, Wallet is going to look exactly like one of those neobank apps. Actually, we hired a product manager from one of the existing neobanks just so kind of we would um, have Web2 expectations rather than Web3 expectations kind of for user experience.
0: And how are neobanks regulated in Europe relative to traditional banks?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. So basically, there is a multi tier um, banking license system in Europe. Um, banking is the highest tier. Um, what banks may do that kind of most um, neo banks may not is um, uh, they may uh, participate in the lending business. So they can give out mortgages and stuff. Mm. Most neo banks don't have this um, license, which makes them mostly unprofitable because this is kind of where most of the profit actually come in for banks because new banks kind of they get the short end of the stick Mm -hmm. so they have to run on traditional financial rates that are really inefficient and they don't get um, the they don't get to have the money maker which is kind of the mortgage and lending business which is why for instance Revolut they acquired a proper banking license last year for exactly that reason.
0: Interesting if you think about where we are, or where you guys are in terms of this adoption curve, is the end state, right? Just crypto, like moving from one wallet to another versus sort of this more convoluted underpinning that that kind of gets 60% there, but not all the way to just simple peer-to-peer transactions.
1: I'm sorry, I'm I'm not entirely sure I understand the question correctly. No, I'm, I I I guess I'm asking like is the future
0: crypto going if I'm purchasing something from a merchant crypto goes from my wallet moves to their wallet and everyone sort of is on the same page versus, you know, the way you described this process—it's sort of you guys are handling the the conversion and.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So in my in my mind, this is kind of like an interim um, process.
0: That's what I was trying to get at. I don't know. I had a bit of a I had a bit of a stroke there for a second, but that's exactly what I'm trying <laughs> Sorry, to get. Sorry, I
1: thought it was me being German. And-
0: <laughs> I was trying to think in German, and so it. it, it- <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, no. So basically, if you look at the telecommunication revolution, so basically, if you look at the first product that Skype actually offered, it was Skype Out, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I don't know whether you remember this.
0: I kind of remember that. Yes.
1: So basically, Skype Out was um, calling any landline phone number from your Skype Mm -hmm. application on your desktop. Yeah, And you would actually have to pay the local tariff because they would go voice over IP the first 95% and then kind of Mm -hmm. for the last mile they would use like the regular copper cable. And this is the way that kind of Skype gained a very significant market share and kind of like spareheaded this for all of for all voice over ip protocols by kind of integrating with the existing system that people knew right so basically the value proposition was super clear you call someone you pay the local tariff mm-hmm. um, and it works with any landline phone worldwide and basically it's the same for us so basically um we we can upgrade <laughs> one side but the other other side we can only incentivize but i assume kind of like this is me going all out but like in 5 mm-hmm. to 10 years i am pretty certain that most financial rails will run on blockchain technology just because it's much, much more efficient than kind of the current stack.
0: Yeah. And what are the impediments to that right now? I mean, we we talked a bit or you touched briefly on the opportunity within the global south. Obviously, those regions almost have the benefit, right, of not having to navigate through existing infrastructure so they can almost leapfrog over it. In a sense, whereas we in the north, as it were, the Western world, have to kind of almost entangle ourselves in old infrastructure. That's an impediment.
1: Um. Yes and no. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it can be an impediment. To me, the biggest impediment at this point is user experience. So, and this is somewhat unwarranted, actually. I know that mm-hmm. kind of people love complaining about Web three user experience. And Mm -hmm. rightly so, because it sucks. I Mm -hmm. mean, barely works for crypto people. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no way we can kind of make the next hundred million people uh, kind of deal with um, 12-word seed phrases and so on. Mm -hmm. But in principle, we have solutions to that. Mm. Um, In principle, we can kind of, we know how to engineer our way out of this. So a large part of this is account abstraction. So account abstraction allows you to do things like um, do away with um, the 12-word seed phrase, um, introduce um, things like authentication by passkey, so kind of like biometrics on your mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, it So currently, um, you can actually make passkey control the owner of a safe. People don't know this and people mm. don't use it. But in principle, it's possible, like from an engineering standpoint, you can do other things. Like you can do social recovery, recovery you can do institutional recovery, you can do... Um, batching of transactions so you no longer you shouldn't have to have this um, approve this now do the transaction now rescind approval that sucks that doesn't work this, mm-hmm. this is not going to work for kind of the larger audience same for for gas so get, kind of if you think about the concept of gas this is a very bare bones thing mm-hmm. right so kind of if you serve to any website if you go to I don't know the New York Times they would never say um, hi Frank um, in order to access this, please pay 0.3 cents. This is your part of a, our AWS bill. It's just amalgamated into their business model, right? So kind of they make revenue via ads and via subscriptions. And then kind of like the, the cost of the infrastructure, that that is not shown <laughs> to the user itself. And uh, that's also what we need to be able to do for Web3 applications, kind of abstract that away from the user, that applications kind of deal with it and kind of let the user have this Web2 experience that in principle we can allow. Otherwise, this is going to remain niche. And, we de- and if we don't manage to kind of tackle this, we, we, we very much deserve to remain niche.
0: Yeah, I think that's really well said. What, what has been the feedback from users and merchants uh, has it has it has it gone unnoticed? But probably what you would want from the merchant side, at least.
1: Yeah. So the merchants have no idea. The merchants <laughs> have absolutely no idea. And this is currently the way that it should be. Yeah. So kind of we are still dealing with internal bugs that kind of we need to weed out. Um, there's uh, it's, um, payments is a pretty messy system. Um, we currently we just in integrated e-commerce payments. Um, and then there's things like Google Pay and Apple Pay and kind of like it's, it's, it's a messy stack um, and it's a process, but um, yeah.
0: It is. And it, and it and it's so hard for these things to all talk to each other in a, in, in a, in a way that's, that always works.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So basically my, I think my point is it needn't be this hard and basically in the long term, it shouldn't be this hard, but in order to kind of make the new way fly, we have to integrate with the old way first.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through any upcoming features or developments in Gnosis Pay that you're particularly excited about? And given your sort of expertise or experience here in this corner of the industry, what trends do you see shaping the payment sector over the next few years?
1: Yeah. So I think um, a big part of it is going to be stables. So mm-hmm. if you look at stables, we currently, we have a very large USD um stablecoin dominance mm-hmm. i think we will start seeing stables for many more um locations right so basically we already have decent european stablecoins for the euro um we're getting some for the british pound um the swiss franc and so on but even for other for for large geographies around the world that currently don't have well-used stablecoins, we will have to start seeing them because kind of FX is not something that kind of you want to settle your users with. So currently, um, we we offer our services to customers in the European Union and the European economic area, but not elsewhere. And we're working on um, a US LATAM and global expansion. Um, So hopefully by end of year, we're available everywhere.
0: Hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely would try to see how seamless connecting the wallets to an IBAN would be on my end.
1: Yeah, it's super handy.
0: Once you guys get to the U.S.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I I don't know whether the IBAN system is actually compatible with the U.S. system because I think the U.S. has its own special um, bank sort code wire sort of system.
0: Yes, we do. But I'm pretty sure that... I don't know how it works, to be honest, but I think you need, if I'm sending money to someone in the UK or Europe and they have the IBAN, I need to put that information down for the wire and then they probably do all sorts of crazy stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, the good thing is kind of if they kind of have a wallet um, behind this, um, you don't need to do that, right? You can say you, you can send them stables off the bat and basically it'll be then uh, in like, a, you know, block time. And that's, and, and that's kind of where we need to get to, right? Kind of, these are the improvements that, that we can in principle facilitate.
0: I know it should be so easy.
1: It should be easy and it could be easy. And it, I, I'm the eternal optimist, but it will be easy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll really appreciate you taking the time to join the show. Are there any, um, where can people learn more and, and maybe follow what you've been working on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, follow us on, on Twitter. So GnosisDAO is our handle. Um, go to our website or join our Discord. And uh, we are more than happy to kind of help anyone if you're um, thinking about deploying on Gnosis Chain, um, which is an incredibly neutral and resilient L1 that's trustlessly connected to Ethereum. Let us know. And uh, we have like a team of rails, um who can help you. And uh, yeah, it's a nice community.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. And The Scoop will be back with you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day. Danke schön. Auf Wiedersehen.
1: (laughs) Danke.